This is Episode 2 of the California Slap Law Podcast. Today we'll discuss the actions commonly brought against attorneys and how those are impacted by California's slap law. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. I am your humble host, Aaron Morris. I'm a partner and the changer of the sparklets water bottle at the law firm of Morris & Stone. Although in fairness, my daughter does sometimes change the water bottle if I'm not around. So welcome to the show. I think you'll find today's podcast very informative. Last week, I promised that this week's show would present you with a slap law checklist so you'd have a way to check to see if an action is a slap, whether it's an action you received or one you're about to file. That turned out to be a really bad idea. I actually started to put together the show and and realized that that was more of a visual presentation. My first clue should have been that I was referring to it as a checklist. That's better suited to a paper format. So I did you one better. I created a PDF document you can download for free from CaliforniaSlapLaw.com. That's a much better way to present the information because I can give the case citations and case summaries, that sort of thing. Remember, I read the cases so you don't have to. Do yourself a solid while you're at CaliforniaSlapLaw.com and sign up for my newsletter while you're there. It lets me inform you of any important developments. In fact, after subscribing, you might as well cancel your daily journal subscription. Well, maybe not. So today, instead of discussing the incredible free checklist you can get at CaliforniaSlapLaw.com, I'm going to discuss the actions that are commonly brought against we attorneys and what impact California slap law has on those actions. I thought that would get your attention. Now, last time I told you that it is crucial for any California litigator to stay current on slap law cases, maybe I can really get you interested if we begin with a look at how the slap law can protect attorneys. So let's start with the most obvious action against attorneys, and that would be malpractice cases. This is one near and dear to all our hearts. If we get sued for malpractice, will the anti-slap statute provide any protection? Well, in that regard, let's begin with the case of Blevins versus Dummerest. Again, all case citations can be found at CaliforniaSlapLaw.com. Just go to the tab mark podcast, and each episode can be found there with complete show notes. Blevins was a fun one. It arose from a dispute between two neighbors over an easement. Blevins sued his neighbor, and Allstate Insurance provided a defense for the neighbor. Dummerest was the attorney Allstate hired to handle the case. Now, Blevins didn't like the way the case turned out, so he sued the neighbor's attorney for intentional violation of public policy, negligent violation of public policy, unfair business practices, intentional infliction of emotional distress, negligent infliction of emotional distress, and fraud. The basic premise of his suit against the attorney was that the acts of the neighbor were intentional and therefore the attorney should not have represented him. In other words, he was arguing that it's against public policy to allow insurance to cover an intentional tort. Therefore, the insurance company Allstate never should have hired the attorney to represent the neighbor. And as a result of representing the neighbor, as a result of that being paid for, the neighbor was able to act with impunity. So, He brought this action against the attorney, and the attorney filed an anti-slap motion as to all the causes of action. Many years ago, I worked as a disc jockey at a top 40 AM radio station in Tucson, Arizona. 
Lucky 13 K-Hit, where AM means Aaron Morris. Now, to fulfill a little bit of our public service requirement, or maybe it was just a paid ad, I don't recall, we ran a little segment called A Point of Law. The way it worked is the announcer would come on and give a little summary of the case. He always gave it a name like the case of the naughty nanny. And he would tell the facts of the case. He'd cut to commercial and then he'd come back and he would tell how the case was decided by the court. And the tagline was always, it's a point of law. I'm always reminded of that when I do these case summaries. So let's get back to the case of the nattering neighbor. What was the outcome of Blevins versus Dumarest? Was the anti-slap motion granted? Well, that's an obvious one, right? We have an attorney, and the attorney doesn't owe a duty to the other side. And this would clearly fall under the litigation privilege because all the things that the plaintiff was complaining about were things that the attorney did in conjunction with the litigation. The Actually, the theory of the plaintiff can be summed up in the opposition he filed to the anti-slap motion. He wrote, They are being sued because they know that the representation of the neighbor violates public policy and that in their representation of the neighbor, they have intentionally lied to me, have made intentional misrepresentations, and have defrauded me, which can be proven by the way they practice law. So even if Blevins convinced the court of that theory, this would clearly fall under the litigation privilege, right? Well, not so fast, cowboy. Incredibly, the trial court denied the anti-slap motion on every cause of action except for fraud. The court stated that the other claims did not fall within the scope of the anti-slap statute because they were premised on an agreement between Allstate and the firm to provide the neighbor with a defense, thereby permitting the neighbor to have peace of mind in continuing to commit intentional torts. In other words, the, the court completely bought into plaintiff's theory about the, this being a big uh, conspiracy between the attorney and the insurance company. To rub salt in the wound, the court even denied the attorney's motion for attorney fees. The attorney appealed the denial of the anti-slap motion as to all the other claims. Let's do a quick aside here about the standard on appeal. California's slap law was designed to afford a lot of protection against slaps. That's evidenced by the fact that the legislature set it up so the discovery is stayed once the motion is filed. Uh, the uh, statute provides for the award of attorney's fees to the prevailing defendant and uh, also provides for an immediate right of appeal if it is denied. What you may not have focused on if you don't do appeals is the standard on uh, review. Most appeals, the standards are the substantial evidence rule, for example. It's called the substantial evidence rule, but it really is just any evidence. If there's any evidence to support the finding of the court or the jury, the case won't be disturbed on appeal. Also, the trial court is given great discretion in issuing determinations of motions. However, in the case of an appeal from a ruling on a anti-slap motion, the matter is decided de novo. It's like a whole new case presented in front of the court of appeal, based on the record, of course, but the court of appeal makes its own determination of the correctness of the trial court's ruling. So in the case of the nattering neighbor, under the de novo standard, the court looked at the first prong of the anti-slap analysis and determined that the case clearly fell under the litigation privilege and hence was subject to the anti-slap statute. As to the second prong, Blevins' chance of prevailing, the Court of Appeal held that he had no chance. The court said that he lacked standing to sue the other side's attorney. He lacked standing to determine the relationship between the neighbor and the insurer. Uh, even assuming he could show that the attorney had engaged in abusive conduct, there would be no basis for recovery of damages. And finally, Blevins had simply failed to provide any evidence to support any of his claims. The Court of Appeal ordered that the anti-slap motion be granted as to all causes of action and that the attorney be awarded his attorney fees. 
So in Blevins versus Dummerest, the attorney was saved from a malpractice claim in a crazy case where the other side sued him. But as Han Solo would say, great kid, but don't get cocky. No reported case has found the usual sort of malpractice case to be a slap. There is one mixed bag from the Supremes. There was a case called Oasis West Realty versus Kenneth Goldman. In that case, an attorney represented Oasis on a redevelopment deal and then two years later spoke at a city council meeting or something opposing the project. Oasis sued their former attorney for malpractice and breach of fiduciary duty, claiming that the attorney was using what he had learned from representing Oasis to actually oppose the project. So they filed that lawsuit and the attorney brought an anti-slap motion. Now, this one was all over the boards with the trial court, the Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court all coming up with a different decision. The trial court actually denied the motion, saying that it did not even satisfy the first prong of the anti-slap analysis because it did not have anything to do with the action or even the attorney's speech, but rather had only to do with his duty of loyalty. For its part, the Court of Appeal found that the attorney's conduct did satisfy the first prong because it arose from a protected activity. It also found that Oasis could not prevail on its theories. The Supreme Court then weighed in and really confused things because it basically ignored the first prong. The Supreme Court used the analogy of whether an attorney could be said to violate the duty of loyalty if he votes against a project he was hired to advance. So they they laid out this whole analogy. Well, we won't speak today of the issue of whether an attorney voting against a project where he represents the client would be a, a violation of the duty of loyalty. We're just not we're just not here to decide that. So we think the Court of Appeal was wrong as to the second prong, so we reverse on that basis. So the Supreme Court kind of dodged the first issue and just went to the second issue and said, well, they were they were wrong on the second issue, so we're going to reverse. So bottom line, no cases found a malpractice action by a client against their attorney can be a slap. The determination that legal malpractice claims do not fall under the slap statute was stated in no uncertain terms in a case called Kolar versus Donahue. Kolar versus Donahue. There, the court stated that legal malpractice actions are categorically outside the reach of the anti-slap statute. The court held that a legal malpractice action does not arise from petitioning activity, but rather reflects an act of negligence. So keep paying those malpractice insurance premiums because the slap statute won't save you. Speaking of malpractice, there is a bit of good news for attorneys. If you file an action on behalf of your client and the case is found to be a slap and there is a motion for attorney's fees, the case law is very clear that the motion for attorney's fees cannot be against the attorney, only the party. Now, if you should have spotted the slap and the client sues for malpractice, that might be a distinction without a difference. But at least in the first instance, the judgment for attorney's fees will not be against you. How about malicious prosecution actions against attorneys for the actions they pursue? Can California slap law provide any protection for those? Well, let's lay a little foundation first. In a sense, a malicious prosecution action is always a slap in spirit. By definition, a malicious prosecution action is a lawsuit against someone who exercised their right of redress. For this reason, a malicious prosecution action will almost always be met with an anti-slap motion, and it will almost always be found to meet the first prong of the analysis. In other words, does the conduct arise from protected conduct? Thus, whether a malicious prosecution action is a slap will come down to the second prong. Is the plaintiff likely to prevail? In that regard, let's discuss Zamos versus Stroud. Zamos versus Stroud. There, there was an attorney named Zamos who represented a client fighting a foreclosure. 
From all indications, Zamos did a great job, and the case ended up settling in favor of the plaintiff for $250,000. But as is usually the case, no good deed goes unpunished, so the client sued, claiming she'd only agreed to take the $250,000 because Zamos promised to sue a bunch of other people and to get her house back. She actually found an attorney willing to pursue that claim, and the case predictably went down in flames. At trial, the judge even warned the attorney. This was a classic moment, and picture yourself in one of these kind of cases. The plaintiff's attorney is getting ready to put on the case, and the judge looks at him and says, you know, I've, I've looked at the transcripts from some of the proceedings in the prior case, and I just don't see how you're going to present this case without your client perjuring herself. You just can't prove up the elements of this case and reconcile it with what I saw in her deposition transcripts, for example. So he said, I just want to I want to give you a heads up that if I hear testimony that's contrary to what I read in the transcripts, I will be putting in a call to the district attorney. But that didn't stop the attorney. He went ahead and continued with his case. And in a classic moment that that we can only feel pain for, his own client didn't show up for the trial. Uh, she apparently took to heart what the judge had said and decided that she wasn't going to show up and testify. So the, the case was dismissed, as you can imagine. And Zamos turned around and sued the attorney for malicious prosecution. Stroud filed an anti-slap motion claiming he had acted on the information provided to him by his client, so he argued that Zamos could not possibly prove that Stroud had acted with malice. That's, that is the usual standard for malpractice against an attorney. If the attorney is acting on the facts as they are presented by the client and there's no basis to put the attorney on notice that what the client is saying is false, that would normally defeat a malicious prosecution action because there is no malice by the attorney. So given the standard, how do you think the case came out? Well, the ruling wasn't particularly earth-shattering. The trial court granted the anti-slap motion as to Stroud, and the Court of Appeal agreed, holding that an attorney may be liable for malicious prosecution if the attorney continues to prosecute a lawsuit after discovery of the facts that the lawsuit has no merit. In this case, what got the attorney in trouble was the transcripts, or were the transcripts. The judge even raised a red flag and said, I've read the transcripts. I don't see how you're going to prevail in this case. And given that overwhelming amount of evidence, the attorney should have known that the case had no merit and refused to pursue it. The courts were clear that filing the action did not get the attorney in trouble. It was continuing to prosecute the action after the transcripts came out that got him in trouble. One final type of suit that is sometimes brought against attorneys are actions for breach of fiduciary duty. Now, we already discussed the case of Oasis West Realty versus Goldman, and that case also included a claim for breach of fiduciary duty. But a far more interesting case as to this specific issue is the case of Peregrine, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Peregrine Funding, Inc. versus Shepard Mullen, Richter, and Hampton. Those rascally rabbits over at Shepard Mullen are always getting into mischief. This case has very convoluted facts, but in a nutshell, Shepard Mullen issued a couple of opinion letters to an investment firm that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. Uh, the investment firm collapsed, and the investors and the bankruptcy trustee sued Shepard Mullen. Shepard Mullen brought an anti-slap motion, which was denied by the trial court. Shepard Mullen exercised its right of immediate appeal and scored a partial victory before the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal ruled that the trial court was correct in denying the motion as to some of the plaintiffs, but not as to others. The case contains a great discussion of the issues presented by a mixed cause of action that included protected and unprotected conduct. The complaint had alleged two types of wrongdoing by Shepard Mullen, and that's where the protected and the unprotected conduct came from. First, 
the first form of conduct was the issuing of the opinion letters. The court ruled that that was not protected conduct since it had nothing to do with any ongoing litigation. Thus, as to the opinion letters, the anti-slap statute provided no protection and the first prong of the analysis was not met. But then there was the petitioning act activity before the SEC. The court ruled that that was protected, and since the court found that that was really the heart of the litigation, it held that the first prong was met and the plaintiffs had to make a prima facie showing their claims had merit. So the bottom line is that the anti-slap statute does provide some protection for attorneys against claims of fiduciary duty, breach of fiduciary duty. It just depends on the merits of the claim. So that'll do it for today. It is essential that California litigators stay current on slap law, but if you need a self-interest to be motivated, now you know that slap law can sometimes afford some protections to attorneys. Be sure to subscribe here and at californiaslaplaw.com, and that will keep you current on this important area of the law. Thanks for listening. I'm glad you found my humble effort, and I hope you found it informative. Have a great week, and try not to slap anyone. One of the many podcasts I listen to is by a guy named Mark Mason, who does a podcast called Late Night Internet Marketing. After each show, he sneaks back on and tells a war story or two or chats about something that has nothing to do with the topic of the show. I'm totally stealing that idea. So in today's podcast, I talked about the case against Shepard Mullen. I have a warm spot in my heart for Shepard Mullen and I smiled a little bit when that case came up. My very first jury trial in federal court was against a defendant represented by Shepard Mullen. I beat them like a rented mule, not not that I would ever beat a rented mule. And I would love to say that it was because of my brilliant trial presentation, but it was really just the facts of the case. Our client had worked on a commission-only basis for a company we'll call XYZ Company. He actually worked for a number of years making just minimal commissions, but one day he landed the big one. He brought in $20 million worth of business for which he was entitled to about $700,000 in commissions. Well, XYZ didn't want to pay all those commissions. You know, there's there's just no love. You're bringing them $20 million, but they don't want to pay you 700000 in commissions. So they didn't want to pay those commissions, so they fired our client and argued that the contract had not been consummated at the time of the termination, so the commissions weren't due. We sued for the commissions, and XYZ hired Shepard Mullen and another firm to handle the defense. The only thing that made the case a tiny bit challenging was that the commission agreement contained an Ohio law provision. And believe it or not, Ohio does not recognize the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. I mean, that's really what the case was all about. They had manipulated the contract in such a way that they were claiming they were entitled to deny him the commissions. That would be the classic scenario for the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. But we didn't have that to work with under Ohio law, so it was strictly a contract basis. The trial had a lot of entertaining moments, but there were there were two things that the Shepard Mullen attorneys did that were so funny, I'll just never forget them. We were asking for, as I said, $700,000. And so during closing argument, one of the Shepard Mullen attorneys did the routine where he took a check. It was actually a check from the company, from XYZ Company. He puts it on the overhead projector, the Elmo unit, and blows it up, you know, this entire size of the wall. And then while he's arguing, he fills out the check and he, he makes out a check to my client in the amount of $700,000 and argues to the jury, that's what this case is all about. It's all about money. He wants you to order my client 
to write a check for $700,000. Well, that might work in a personal injury case where you're claiming the person is claiming damages they're not entitled to, but this was a breach of contract case. Either the money was owed or it wasn't. The uh, jurors came up to us afterwards and I asked one of them about that. And he said, oh yeah, we were, we were really offended by the check routine. He said, uh, we got the impression that he wanted us to say, wee, that's a big check. We can't be writing a check that big. And he said that that was so offensive because it's just it's just a matter of whether the money is owed or not. But there was another great moment in the trial. The jury went back and deliberated a very short amount of time, came back and awarded us every penny we'd asked for. And in a case like that, the jury really bonds with the plaintiff because they could see that XYZ company was trying to cheat our client. And it makes the jurors feel good that they were able to save the plaintiff. So the jury came rushing over to talk to my client and I after the verdict was read. And my client, always the salesman, started handing out his business card. Well, his business cards are little boxes of gum. And for some reason, Shepard Mullen during the trial had made a big deal about his bubblegum business cards. I, I never really understood why they made an issue of that. I think maybe it was just to show he was unprofessional or something. You know, a businessman working with million-dollar contracts shouldn't be giving out bubblegum business cards or something. But anyway, uh, they made a big deal out of it. And that's why it was so funny that now we're following the trial. My client is handing out these business cards to the jurors that have uh, bubblegum in them. And so the judge at this point had already left the bench and he was over in the corner of the courtroom confirming with the court clerk and the Shepard Mullen attorney seeing that my client was handing out these bubblegum business cards to the jurors shouted to the judge over the din your honor the plaintiff is bribing the jurors the judge looked up saw what was happening and kind of rolled his eyes and said it's not before me I love being a litigator have a great weekend and talk to you soon